Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Good morning. It's great to be with you today. I want to thank Pastor Brian for the invitation to come back. It's, uh, it's been a fun week, and we will see a few folks and chat with some folks after the first service that I haven't seen in a while, and uh, we're really grateful for the opportunity. This is a place that will ever, forever hold um, a unique spot in our lives. I got my start in ministry here in uh, 2004, and uh, we're, we were on staff here for 12 years, so 2016, and uh, got to see a lot of things and experience a lot of things, and those first experiences in ministry uh, will never be supplanted by an experience in any other church, and uh, we're really grateful to God for those years, and excited to be with you today. If you do come up to me after the service and I don't remember your name, it has been six years. There's a lot of weeds that have grown up over those neural pathways, so uh, so bear with me uh, on that. We, um, you know, what is what does a guest preacher talk about? This is the first Sunday in June. Summer's here. Some of you may feel like you got robbed the last two summers, so I have a feeling this summer's a little bit of a jailbreak summer for some of you. So, what does a guest preacher preach on? Well, I'm going to be talking about how to make the most of life from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. Wisdom, it's been said, is there to help us live with God-honoring competency in the gray areas of life. When there's no verse or law telling you what to do, that's biblical wisdom. So we're going to look at that from Ecclesiastes, how to make the most of life using this biblical wisdom. But as I prepared this, I did wonder... um, where do people who don't turn to the Bible get their wisdom? And that has an easy answer. Pinterest. Okay. Pinterest. So I went on to Pinterest and said, how to live life. Search how to live life. And what came up is frightening. It's terrifying. And it'll explain to you the world you live in. Here's a sampling of the list of things that I found. How to live life according to Pinterest. Here we go. An apple a day keeps anyone away if thrown hard enough. When life gives you lemons, squeeze them in people's eyes. It's explaining your world to you, isn't it? Always borrow money from a pessimist. He won't expect it back. Some cause happiness wherever they go. Others, whenever they go. I thought about making that into a poster and hanging it on my office door. And then a question at the bottom, which one will you be? Does that go too far? Not inviting, is it? Ah, Keep the gloves up, all right? To err is human, to blame it on somebody else shows management potential. My apologies, managers. Let me give you one more. Before you marry a person, you should first make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they truly are. (laughs) There actually is a ton of wisdom in that one. If you're in a dating relationship and you're not sure who it is you're dating, you do that with them and you'll find out in a heartbeat. 
We're in the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you do have your Bibles, you can open them so you can be glancing at them here and there. Uh, Hortonville, I want to get a word out to you. Thank you for letting me, my pixeled presence, into your hearts and minds today. Glad to be with you. Ecclesiastes, it's a wisdom book. It's, uh, it's one of those books you can read in one sitting, but what you'll find when you finish is you'll be scratching your head, trying to figure out what in the world this thing is saying. And it's written purposefully that way because it understands that life is like that. Life itself is like that. It leaves you scratching your head at times. The prevalent theme is how life can be complex, messy, sometimes brutal. But there's a straightforward way to look at the mess, a straightforward way to make the most of this messy life. So we're going to look at four wisdom nuggets that will help us make the most of this messy life. Take this with you into your summer. Here are the four, and I'll work through them one at a time. Stop pretending. Don't fall for gimmicks. Do your bucket list and fear God. Stop pretending. Don't fall for gimmicks. Do your bucket list and fear God. Four wisdom nuggets and how to make the most of this messy life. First, stop pretending. During the it's 13 incredibly short years I've been a parent, I have watched my kids time and again create imaginary worlds visible only to them. They might be playing with a cardboard box, but to them it had been crafted into a kingdom where king and villain engage in a perpetual struggle, ended only by the call to wash up for dinner. The spectacular ability to create entire worlds with their imaginations sometimes gets confusing when they attempt to adjust to the real world. In the pretend world, making any food you want and eating it for free is just how it works. But in the real world, you cannot sit at the dinner table and just expect dad or mom to fetch you whatever food your imagination craves at the moment. As my wife has said over and over again, I am not a short order cook. My kids have created some imaginative worlds, pretend worlds. They aren't real. Ecclesiastes is one of those gifts that God gives us to help us live in the real world. And it jolts us into realizing that not everything is as clean and tidy as it is in our pretend worlds. The book begins with shock tactics. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Boy, what a way to start a book. Other translations use the word meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless. Now, our tendency at this point <laughs> is to read this like a freshman philosophy student who comes home at Christmas break and announces to his family, the universe as we know it is pointless and life has no meaning. As we'll discover, that is not what the writer is getting at. In other places in the Old Testament, the word for vanity is translated with words like breath, passing shadow, fleeting, so part of the writer's shock tactic is to remind us that life is short. 
It's fleeting. It's a breath. It's a mist. Now, when he says life is short, it's not just a reference to the length of time that passes between your birth and death. The writer says all is vanity. Every aspect of our lives is short, fleeting, a breath. You can pour your whole life into something and it might succeed or it might fail. You could land a dream job tomorrow only to see the business go belly up the next month. How much control do you really have over whether your job is secure or how healthy you'll be? Who you'll meet, where you'll be in 10 years time. How much control do you have over that? You don't really know. Every aspect to your life, every moment of your life is a breath. It's a mist. It's a vapor. This is the writer's reality check. Stop living in a pretend world where all these moments go on and on and on. Not too terribly long ago, our family spent some time on the beach. My favorite place to be in January and February on a beach. And what do we do? We built sandcastles. We spent Hours building sandcastles. And it was only a couple hours time before the tide came in and reduced our city of sandcastles to a patch of ordinary beach. We built sandcastles for a short time, but they were subject to forces beyond our control. That's life. That's the writer's reality check to wake us up from our pretend world. Now, his end game is not going to be for us to throw up our hands and say, well, okay, why bother with anything? No, this is the profundity of this book. He's saying the wise person accepts that life is short and elusive. The wise person accepts we are subject to forces beyond our control. But listen, the wise person still builds sandcastles and enjoys doing so but doesn't get flustered when the tide reduces them to ordinary beach. I think we would find life a whole lot more enjoyable if we realize that not everything can be fixed. That's part of wisdom. I think we'd find life a whole lot more enjoyable if we would accept that not everything is a problem to be solved. Listen, some things in life must be tolerated, suffered, and endured. Wisdom is not about mastering the world. Getting the most out of life isn't about solving every problem. It's about enjoying building sandcastles. Even though in a moment's time, the tide will reduce them to ordinary beach. Second, don't fall for gimmicks. In chapter two, this writer journeys on a quest to find satisfaction and meaning in life. He gives his life to numerous different kinds of pursuits, giving himself to wisdom and comedy and pleasure, alcohol, projects, possessions. And as he does all of this, he holds happiness in his hands. 
And then he feels it slip through his fingers. And after his quests were over, this is what he concludes. All is vanity and a striving after wind. We can relate to his experiments because just about everything you do on a daily basis is done to make yourself happy. We feed ourselves to make ourselves happy. We stay in the shower a little bit longer because we can hear the kids fighting downstairs. We dress ourselves with clothes we likely chose because of the way they made us feel as we beheld them for the first time. All of our varied pursuits are in the name of finding happiness, earning a living, finding a spouse, raising good kids, having fun, keeping fit. From 1966 to 1997, more than three decades, that's 31 years, there ran a series of TV commercials in the UK for Hamlet Cigars. And they all followed the same basic plot line. There was some poor human being trying to achieve something that went horribly wrong each time. No matter how hard that person tried, it would always fail. And the humor of the ads lay in watching this person fall on his or her face again and again until they resigned themselves to failure, simply lit up the cigar, cue the tagline, happiness is a cigar called Hamlet. If you're running something for 31 years, you're scratching an itch somewhere. What's it saying? Boy, these, this pursuit of happiness is elusive. It's elusive, 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 elusive. Is happiness found in a cigar called Hamlet? The advertisers know it's not. So this writer of Ecclesiastes engages in these pursuits, academics, attends Jerusalem University, learns from all the best professors, passes all the exams, learns all this stuff, but his heart still aches, just like the person who knows nothing. Degree certificates line his wall, but his tears are the same as the person working on the street who never went to school. So he leaves the university. That's not it. Heads down the street to the comedy club. Maybe it's in humor, laughter. Leaves the comedy club. Goes to the expensive wine bars that line the streets. Sits outside in the sun, savoring glass after glass. He then turns a corner. That's not it. Let's do something else. He becomes industrious. Work, management, projects, career, getting things done. Maybe this is where happiness is found. Money, power, you name it. This writer is a person of influence. He's undoubtedly an A-list celebrity secure at the top of the Forbes annual billionaires list. He's been successful in everything he's tried. Everything he wants, he has immediately. But his conclusion remains the same. It's a chasing after the wind. He discovered that although we pursue happiness in every corner of our lives, in the same corners lurk the darkness of diminishing returns. Happiness is a vanishing vapor. All our bubbles eventually burst. My favorite childhood movie growing up was Chariots of Fire. Um, many of you know the story of Eric Little. and there's the, the, the antagonist in the story is a guy by the name of Harold Abrahams. And uh, Harold is driven to win. He goes next level in his pursuit of victory. Um, 
And in the, in the run-up to the finals of the 100-meter dash, which was his event, he's in the training room with a teammate of his named Aubrey and becomes very reflective in this time. And at one point in his reflection, he says to his teammate, Aubrey, in one hour's time, I'm going to be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Well, Harold goes out there and he wins. He wins the gold medal. And there's a huge celebration on the track. He's on the shoulders of his teammates. He's got the flag. Huge celebration. Big smile on his face. And one of the very next scenes, Harold's in the bar looking a bit inebriated, staring off into the distance as if to say, is this all there is? The wisdom writer would say, Harold's problem was not in his effort to win or in the actual winning. The problem was what he was asking the winning to do for him. Career success cannot provide you with ultimate satisfaction. They're gimmicks. Romance, money, hobbies, careers, they're gimmicks. The question is not should you pursue those things or enjoy pursuing those things or go all out and pursuing those things. The question is what are you asking these things to do for you? Harold wanted his victory to provide him with the sense that I have arrived. I'm set. I'm accomplished. And he realized it fell far short. Don't fall for gimmicks. However, third, do your bucket list. There is something to be said for enjoying life. While education, comedy, work may not offer ultimate happiness, it doesn't mean we avoid these things. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. The ideas conveyed in this verse are scattered throughout the book. And upon first blush, it may appear that the writer is touting this nihilist creed, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a sloppy reading of the text. Now, in reality, some people do say that. <laughs> eat, drink, and be merry, because that's all there is. But the writer is saying something different. The writer is saying, no, eat, drink, and be merry, because that's what there is. The writer acknowledges throughout that God has given us good gifts to enjoy, and they are their own reward. Now, I haven't come out and said this baldly. I'm going to take a really sharp turn. It's going to feel like a sharp turn. I want to bring this back to I believe the major purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes is to get us to think about death. The sum total of all the experiments the writer conducts of all that he witnesses of all that he ponders is to get us to come face to face with our mortality. And then to reorder our lives according to the shared experience of death that awaits us all. In other words, Ecclesiastes is the ultimate book to help you live life backwards. Start from the end and then work up to your present day. 
So think about this. When we, when we learn to accept in a deep way that we are going to die, that can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. Yeah, you can throw your best time and your energy and expectations into pursuing that dream job, but if you keep your death in view, there will be a limit to that job's ability to absorb your time, energy, and expectations. You may pursue and achieve a dream job, but you're going to die one day. You may pursue and achieve your dream home, but you're going to die one day. You may pursue and achieve your dream for your family, but you and they are going to die one day. See, all too often, I think we use God's gifts as a means of chasing after other things. But death reorients us. It can cause us to enjoy God's good gifts for what they are in themselves. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end, we take time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. You know, we use work as an example to get the gift of wealth and success. Oftentimes, this is how we treat it. We work in order to play on the weekend. But the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, that's not your approach. What are you doing? Your work itself is a gift simply to enjoy, regardless of whether or not it makes you rich. We use food and drink to fill our bellies and remove the discomfort of hunger so we can get on with life, with what's really important. But the writer says, no, why are you doing it that way? Slow down. Have some friends around. Cook or order some delicious food and savor the flavors. Live inside the gift. David Gibson, in his fantastic book on Ecclesiastes, writes this. He says, a life fully lived is a life receiving the reward of today as a gift that you don't deserve and one that God has given you to enjoy. One day, it won't be possible. Death is coming. So do your bucket list. Not your to-do list. We all have a to-do list. Feed the dog, go to the bank, do the shopping, phone the plumber. But Ecclesiastes is a book that urges us to do our bucket list. In human experience, I think we know this to be true. <laughs> Failure to enjoy a gift is an offense, not just an oversight. Failure to enjoy a gift is an offense. It's not just an oversight. If you give Christmas presents or birthday presents to your children or your grandchildren, you don't want to see that thing collect dust. No parent is glad that Buzz Lightyear sits pristinely in the box rather than being lovingly bashed and bumped in daily adventures. So I have an assignment for you. Create a bucket list if you haven't already. And make plans to execute your bucket list. And as you do, heed the writer's counsel. On the one hand, happiness will not be found in doing your bucket list. Don't expect it to give you ultimate meaning in life. Don't ask too much of it. On the other hand, your bucket list will likely contain innumerable gifts from God that he expects you to use and play with 
and lovingly bash in daily adventures. Live inside those gifts. Enjoy them. Fourth and finally, fear God. One concluding nugget of wisdom to make the most of this messy life. And this is the one that will help you with the previous three. This is the one that actually helps contain and give shape and direction to the other three. And it's not my thought. It's the writer's final two verses of the book. Read this way. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Fearing God, keeping his commands, and remembering there is a judgment day in all of our futures will enable us to live inside reality rather than a pretend world. It will make us suspicious of gimmicks that promise everlasting happiness. And it will allow us to enjoy and live inside the good gifts that God's given us without asking too much of them. Fear of God gives shape and contains the other three. There's a question that remains, though. What, what does it mean to fear God? I'll illustrate it for you. In college, I was a music major, and some people ask, what does a final exam look like for a music major? If you're singing or you're playing an instrument, what does that final exam look like? Uh, well, they're called juries. Did you hear that? Juries is what the final exam is for an instrumentalist or a vocalist. Here's what it looks like. On exam week, every individual musician has a jury. You walk into the room, and who's in there? Who's in there? The jury. The jury is in there. Four to seven of the most senior faculty in the music department. They sit behind a table. They've got large pots of coffee, papers scattered about them in front of them, and they're waiting with pencils in hand to make their indelible marks of judgment on your performance. That's what a final exam is for a music major. It was awful. I could have three to five other final exams in that week. The only thing I was thinking about was my jury. Filling out an exam form with 100 other students in a lecture hall was a piece of cake next to the daunting gauntlet at the jury room. I could be studying for my microeconomics exam, and all I'm thinking about is my jury. That's it. This wonderfully illustrates what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord doesn't mean to cower in the corner of your room wondering if God is going to get you. To fear the Lord means doing everything with reference to him. To fear the Lord is to do all things with him in your field of vision. Whether you're negotiating a multi-million dollar deal or you're playing Candyland with your kids, it's to do everything 
with him in your field of vision. That's what it means to fear the Lord. This is the nugget of wisdom that maintains all the others. When God is perpetually in your field of vision, when you do everything with reference to him, you will not freak out when the tide reduces your sandcastles to ordinary beach. When you lose that job, when the home falls apart, when relationships are broken, if God is in your field of vision, in that moment, you will not freak out. If God is in your field of vision, you're not going to fall for gimmicks that promise ultimate happiness through career or romance or education or money. Because as you pursue those things, God is there. He's there. And he's saying to you, it's not those, it's me. And you'll be able to truly live inside and enjoy the good gifts that God has graciously and generously provided you. He's in your field of vision as the gift comes your way. And he points to it and says, this is from me. Enjoy it as you keep an eye on me. The beginning and end of making the most of life is to fear God. Do everything with him in your field of vision.